Hi, this is Shauna. Before we get to today's guest, I want to take a minute to learn more about you, the listener. We've put together a short survey at fueltalent.com slash podcast to gather information on who's listening and to give you a chance to make suggestions and comments about the show. I want What Fuels You to be a great resource for you and your interests, and I hope these interviews give you practical advice along with inspiration for your career and life. Help us continue to serve you better by going to fueltalent.com slash podcast. Thank you so much. Now let's start today's show. Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Catherine Sizov. Catherine is the CEO and co-founder of Strala, a biosensing hardware and software company that provides data to optimize the produce supply chain and decrease losses due to food waste. She started the company when she read that 40% of food was wasted before being consumed. Now, Strella has helped Washington State apple and pear growers organize their inventory based on shelf life to reduce food waste and improve the overall quality. Catherine studied molecular biology at the University of Pennsylvania, where she further explored her passion for applied science and food. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. I'm going to hit you first with some rapid fire. Sounds great. Okay. What is your favorite cuisine or favorite thing to eat? Um, I've been on a big Indian kick lately, um, particularly chickpeas, because I don't think I've ever really learned how to cook them super well. So um, just trying to get good at that. Yeah, like making like hummus? Um, just like chickpea dishes. So uh, first of all, I'm one of those people that used to just... Uh, buy cans of them. And then apparently that's not cool. <laughs> so I've been actually soaking them and then preparing them with uh, usually some kind of vegetable um, to go alongside or just in kind of like yeah. a fry. Yeah. Well, I think that that's very healthy. They're like a superfood, I think. Um, yeah. Okay. What's your favorite way to unwind? I, I love going on walks, hikes, enjoying sunsets. Mm -hmm. Well, um, you could do those all at the same time. Exactly. <laughs> Pork canolos dos, right? <laughs> Okay, three words that uh, other people use to describe you as a leader. Oh, man. Um, I think uh, probably straightforward is one of them. I think uh, it's not really a word, but uh, gets it done and then purpose-driven. Nice. Those are good ones. Gets it done, I guess. Um, driven? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> efficient? I don't know. Um, I, it's not always <laughs> efficient. <laughs> honestly but it gets done <laughs> as aspirationally efficient um what did you want to be when you were a little girl astronaut still kind of want to be an astronaut well you're young so you're you have like you could do 2.0 3.0 you know build this company go be an astronaut i would yeah maybe wouldn't maybe after this one yeah <laughs> um what have you read listened to or watched that um if you have time that you'd recommend 
Uh, I just read or kind of recently read a book called Stolen Focus, which I thought was really good. It's about how, you know, we get distracted by phones and computers and things and uh, how we can mitigate that. Stolen Focus. Okay, I'm writing that one down. I don't always write things down during the podcast, but this one's good for me. It's Um, really good. It's a little, it's a little sad, um, especially there's a chapter about kids and like the autonomy of children and how kids don't really know how to play like free games anymore. And they're not used to like their parents just letting them outside and just playing Um, that that's a little sad, but I think in general, it's a really good book. It's really eye opening one too. Yeah. I definitely want to read it. Um, If there was a book written about you and your life so far, what would it be called? Oh my God. Um, (laughs) Oh man. Uh, What would it be called? Um, some, it probably have the word adventure in it, I think, um, because that's what this all feels like is, uh, one, one crazy, messy, uh, but super exciting adventure. (laughs) Yeah. Fun. Um, okay. This is my final rapid fire for you. If you could choose to have a superpower, um, what would it be? Uh, I think it would be kind of the King Solomon answer of ultimate knowledge, uh, uh, in the world. Oh, can you imagine just yeah. like all knowing, all being? <laughs> yeah. Or just like having, having all of the knowledge of humans uh, in your head at once, but I guess that's what chat GPT is for. So <laughs> <laughs> all of our problems are solved and yeah, we we're, can we're good. <laughs> drop, drop, drop the mic. We're going to be on a walk. You guys just solve that. Okay. That's perfect. Um, okay. So I know you're first generation American, um, your family moved here and you grew up in Boston and then Virginia. Is that right? Yep. Uh, so I, I grew up, yeah, mostly in Virginia as a kid. And then for college, I moved to Philly. And what brought your family here? So um, basically in the Soviet Union, surprise, surprise, there wasn't really great medical treatment. And so my older sister had cancer and my family was looking for a way to get treatment. And the United States um, obviously has a great, well, there's a lot of debate about that, but certainly a better medical system than in the Soviet Union at the time. And so um, this was kind of a bastion, uh, safe haven for them. And so they did their best to get out of there and here. And how was that for them? And how do you think that experience, um, as far as their life views, shaped you? I um, I actually think my dad is very much a hippie, uh, which is kind of a weird uh, combination coming from the Soviet Union. And so I think, uh, I think America really suits him. Um, he's a developer engineer. And so, uh, the company he worked for was like, you know what, we've been wanting to start an American, uh, office division and you'll be the first one here. And, uh, I think that will solve your problems. And so I think we learned how to rely on our community, uh, trust people, um, from a very, very early onset. Um, and then also, Again, like I am a pretty big fan of the United States as a result. Uh, I guess that's like a standard first gen thing. Yeah. And how's your sister? Did she get the medical treatment that she needed? And She did get the treatment she needed, but um, she got diagnosed uh, with another cancer a couple of years later and fortunately uh, died. But um, oh, God. But yeah, I, we, did, we did what we could, you know? Yeah. And your family... Um, left their family. So that must've been hard because your parents' parents are still in the Soviet Union. Yes. Yes. They uh, were and are. Um, So I actually grew up going to Russia uh, 
in the summers, especially, and kind of spending my summers in the forests in Russia, kind of in the and the rural areas. It is weird how different it is. I uh, I think uh, the culture is is pretty dramatically different. I think you know, especially with like what's currently going on, it's interesting to see even where miscommunication happens or like how different cultures react to the same thing. Um, I. I mostly, like I said, spend my time in Moscow and then also kind of uh, a little bit on the outside of Moscow. And it's it's actually the climate and the uh, nature looks a lot like the PNW. <laughs> um, so lots of evergreen forests, um, lots of lakes uh, and rivers. It's uh, really beautiful, especially in the summer. In the winter, it gets a little bit dicey for sure. It's all just a blanket of like white snow. Yeah. And when your family moved, did they, were they seeking out a Russian community or were they like, hey, now we're in the U.S. and we're completely going to assimilate? Yeah. So the first thing, what my parents told me, the first thing they did was actually go to church um, because uh, church is your kind of community uh, in the United States very often. And those were kind of the first people that brought them in. They made friends with their neighbors. Uh, their first house wasn't a house. It was just an attic in another, in a really welcome family's house. Um, and so uh, they very much relied on, on, the community and we're like, well, we're here, we're, we're speaking English, we're learning English. Um, and that's, that's what I did. Yeah. And so, um, I know that I read also that you guys lived near Harvard and then uh, tell me about the part where you were like looking for parts. I, I read that, that your dad and you would go try to find parts that were like scrapped and they weren't using. Yeah, so we first we moved to Colorado. That was kind of the first spot. And I was born there. Actually, I was born in America. Um, so I was born in Boulder, Colorado. And then we moved to Massachusetts to continue my sister's treatment um, in Boston. Um, so around that time is I was like a pretty young kid. And my dad used to go to, um, yeah, the <laughs> Harvard University, like, I guess, sort of like a yard sale, except everything's free and in a dumpster. So basically what the way it worked was that the university is like fairly well off and they had a bunch of stuff that, you know, regular people usually can't afford um, or might need. Um, so he would look at all the computer equipment. Um, basically, universities will dump all their computers after a couple of years, but they're still working and in good condition. And my dad's very good at that stuff. So he would go to the computer section and like dig up uh, components there. Um, and then in order to prevent me as a kid from running away, um, I was super hyperactive. He would put me in one of the actual dumpsters. Um, and the one that he would put me in was the biomedical one. So inside there were things like PCR machines or uh, broken centrifuges and things like that. And so I kind of grew up uh, like literally surrounded by biotech equipment. And I think what was really cool to me was that I would... Uh, create like games in my head around like what all these things were to entertain myself. But then I would bring them to my dad and be like, what are these things actually? And he was like, I have no freaking idea. And to me, that was really exciting because when your parents as a kid, when you realize that your parents don't have ultimate knowledge <laughs> as a kid, you're, that's like very exciting to you. And so I think that's what initially sparked my interest in science. And so were you a good student in all subjects or was like science your jam? I don't think I ever was a great student, <laughs> honestly speaking. Well, you had to, you had to have been because you went to University of Pennsylvania. I mean, you had to have been. I, and people can say imposter syndrome all they want, but I got recruited. Uh, so I like to think of myself as the little fish in a big pond. So I got recruited via sports to a smart school um, is the way that I look at it. So 
I feel like I always tend to squeeze into uh, things that uh, that I'm yeah. underqualified for, but I think yeah. it serves a great purpose. <laughs> so you were, so I guess you had like your subjects that you were good at, some obviously we all have that you weren't so good at, and you um, went there for fencing, right? I did, yes. And I did really love science um, in high school. I spent a lot of time at the National Institutes of Health. I had some amazing mentors there that really just instilled a love for learning and and uh, molecular biology alongside other things in me. So uh, yes, uh, I, I, out of all the subjects, my grades are definitely best there. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you remember a moment or a conversation or something where you had that kind of epiphany that like I'm into this? Like I love molecular biology. Um, what were you doing at the time or what was the conversation about that it kind of clicked? Yeah. So actually I was fencing at my uh, little club when I was like 15 or 16. And what's cool, what I've always loved about fencing is that uh, people of all ages do fencing. Um, and so as a 15 year old, I was exposed to people who are well into their careers, uh, people who are a decade, two decades, five decades older than me. And so this one guy got to talking about what he does. And he was basically um, a pre-med student in college and he was working in a lab. It sounded really interesting to me. And so I eventually convinced him to give me the email of his boss. Um, and I asked if I could also maybe do some <laughs> intern work for them. That's amazing. Um, tell me a little bit more about fencing. Who introduced you to fencing? It feels um, like, I don't know if I had fencing at my high school. Yeah, um, I, I didn't either. I, I've always been into martial arts. I've always kind of liked fighting. Like I, I like to joke that in fight or flight, I, I've usually picked the fight. Um, and so I guess my parents were like, is there a way to turn this into college? <laughs> and so uh, so I think, yeah, well, later in my teen, teen years, they're like, okay, well, can you just try this other like martial art? And I, I really took a liking to it. Um, I just, yeah, I, I really like fencing. It's a combination of physical and mental, um, which actually is the reason why I wanted to be an astronaut too, is I like doing both. Um, mm -hmm. Are you still doing it? I am. There's actually a club in Seattle. Um, it's like one and a half miles from, uh, from my office and in downtown. It's, it's That's a so boring. cool. I'd say you've probably met an, a really good group of friends and community just through fencing. That's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. It's really cool. Like the, the first moment I stepped into this Seattle club, like I, I saw someone that I had fenced with in college um, and we used to compete together, but now we're like friends. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, okay, fine. Now I'll let you in. So you went to University of Pennsylvania. What other schools did you apply to or work pursuing you? Or did you consider? And in reflecting back, um, was it the right choice? Yeah. So the way recruiting worked for me uh, was that uh, I kind of like did initial interviews or kind of uh, felt out the, sussed out the vibe um, from coaches early on. So uh, I had a couple of schools that I was interested in. Um, and then I applied uh, even before early decision and where they kind of pre-vetted my application. And then they told me whether or not I was likely to make it in. Um, and so the way that I did it was I just went to the best schools that I could until someone told me no. So uh, for example, I had been told that I would likely make it into Penn. And so I went to Harvard and I was like, well, you guys take me. And they said, girl, no. <laughs> mm -hmm. So then I was like, okay, that doesn't work. Um, but yeah, I think the the two schools are, I was looking at were Cornell and Penn. Yeah. And so, so Penn was the right choice. 
Yeah, I, I really love Penn. Um, well, first of all, I got so much out of it from an entrepreneurship standpoint, um, but also in terms of the location, it's so good to be around a city uh, when you're in school, um, you know, when final exams are kicking in and everyone's stressed out, freaking out. Um, it's really nice to just be able to go on a walk and then like see regular people, you know, not freaked out about something that doesn't matter. Um, and then also ha just have the ability to experience a city uh, when you're in college. Yeah, that makes sense. Not something I had thought about, but that totally makes sense. Um, so when you're considering Penn, um, tell me about the things that you weighed. So you're thinking, okay, do I like the coach? Do I like the location? How's their molecular biology program? I'm guessing um, what kind of like scholarship or opportunity are they giving me? Like there's a whole bunch of things that go into that decision. Um, what, what amount of weight were you giving molecular biology? Like, I guess my big question is, um, at that stage of life, did you have any sense of what you wanted to be? Like you still weren't going to be an astronaut or you, at that point you were thinking astronaut. I was definitely still thinking astronaut because, uh, I think a lot of astronauts come with science degrees. <laughs> so I was like, okay, this is like still on the path, you know, um, I'm not going into the military. I can't, I don't think I can handle that one. Um, but I'm still going to continue on the science path. And I do really like this particular field uh, that I've gotten myself into. So was certainly considering that. Um, and then obviously I think financial aid was kind of the biggest, uh, the biggest question uh, for us. Yeah. And so when you chose your major, um, were you thinking uh, like, I have to go find some internships or who was helping you along the way? Because it's not something that your dad had studied or, you know, going through the American process of college apps, like who was guiding all this? My parents have done a fantastic job of actually figuring out like school uh, in the US. Uh, so big uh, kudos to them. But in terms of my career, I think I just, like I said, I, I was really fortunate to be surrounded by people who really love their job, um, whether that was like my mentors uh, at NIH or when I came to Penn, um, all the folks I worked with in labs. And so they kind of guided me. Um, I just hung around them. Um, and uh, at some point I, I mean, the, the natural track is to go to grad school, right? Um, and so that was kind of where I was, where I was going to be going. Yeah. And what disrupted that as far as, um, well, first of all, what work were you doing in the labs? What were some of the things you were working on? Yeah, I was working on neuromuscular disorders. Uh, so I started with like muscular dystrophy and figuring out how it happens, what causes muscular dystrophy. Um, and then I moved more towards like uh, autism spectrum disorders uh, later on. Um, a lot of my work involved mice. Uh, it's actually kind of funny. Um, if you want to tell if a mouse is antisocial, you basically put it into a cage. And on one side of the cage, you put a rock. And on the other side of the cage, you put another mouse. And then you just see how much time the mouse spends with the rock versus the other mouse. And if it's a normal mouse, it's going to spend basically all of its time with the other mouse. But if it's antisocial, it's going to go and spend a lot of time with the rock. So I spent a lot of time looking at mice and rocks uh, when I was at Penn. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's, that is unbelievable. Like how many hours can you sit and watch that? That's like, wow. Many hours, because the other thing is, it's also pretty subjective, right? Like how much time did each mouse spend? And so they're like, well, we need one person to collect all the data for of all course. the mice in this lab. Yeah, yeah. You, you, can't, <laughs> you, have to, you can't control for too many things. Like you have to have exactly. a consistency there. That's so funny. So did you graduate? Did you just graduate in 2019? Yes, I did. And you're already like kicking ass, crushing it. Um, I guess when you graduated, what was the plan? And how did you get here? Like walk me through this 
<laughs> from from 2019 to Strella, like what was what was the whole path there? Yeah, so around my junior year, I uh, started thinking about like what's next. Um, and again, the natural kind of next step would be graduate school. And uh, I don't know, my heart kind of felt heavy for some reason. It, that just wasn't really it wasn't working for me. I think uh, I think I realized that a PhD is something around eight years. I couldn't think of a project that I wanted to do for eight. Uh, years in neuroscience. I also didn't really know if I wanted to be in a, be at a lab bench every single day of my life, you know, because that's what it is, is you come and you do your work um, and you're basically in a lab. And I, I just wanted to have maybe more of a human element involved, maybe have science plus something else in my life. And so I just started honestly procrastinating and thinking about other potential opportunities. And so the only thing that I could think of was, okay, I'm just going to read. I'm going to read anything that's interesting to me, and I'm not going to really put a barrier on what I'm reading. Um, and so I eventually stumbled uh, across the whole food waste issue, um, that 40% of food is wasted before it's consumed. And that kind of just sparked a whole kind of a very deep dive, uh, very long rabbit hole that eventually became this company. So when you say 40% of food is wasted before it's consumed, is that a U.S. statistic or a global statistic? It's a global statistic uh, published by the Food and Agricultural Organization. And so, okay, so you have this aha moment, and then what do you do? Because I'm just like, I love that beginning part. You're like, and then I go and corporate name. How do I, name? <laughs> no, no. I call a friend. I call my parents. Like, I have this idea. Who do you call first to tell about the idea? So I went to the grocery store because I was like, whoa, like I, I am one of those people that just takes it for granted that I can go to the grocery store at any point in my life, at any time, 24 seven, and I have food available to me. And I don't even know where the food comes from. So I went to the grocery store and I asked like someone stocking the shelves, like, hey, like, where do these plums come from? And she was really helpful. She told me all about it. Um, and then I realized uh, that maybe it makes sense to just dig into the supply chain, talk to a couple of different people, talk to some grocery stores, talk to some farmers, talk to some people who are distributing food and just learn a little bit more. Also, again, I don't think school is really my strong suit. So any excuse to skip class uh, was one that I would willingly take. So if, uh, if I, yeah, if I had an excuse to go to a farm <laughs> and not go to class, I was going to do it. So that's what ended up happening. <laughs> And so what does the name Strella mean? Is that the first name that you came up with? Yeah. Uh, so Strella means uh, arrow in Russian. Um, and so uh, to me, so a lot of the air and space nomenclature in Russian, it comes from like a certain, I guess, family of words. Um, and Strella is one of those. Actually, the first dog that was sent into space that came back alive was Strelka. Um, so same, same word. So to me, it kind of uh, signals progress. It signals technology, uh, straightforwardness as an, as an arrow is. And then in English, it's got a feminine will to it, which I really like. I love that answer. I love all of it. I like, oh, that's the clip right there. I'm like, and I, and I agree because the name Strella for some, some names with like our clients and companies that I read about, it's like, you just, it creates a very quick, like gut reaction. And I remember the first time I heard the name of your company, I was like, huh, like I wanted to learn more. It's something about the name I love. Um, and so what was the original business idea? And is it the same as the business idea that you have now? Um, and I guess then what's the business model? Yeah. Um, so the original business idea, and it is pretty similar, is basically that 
um, the perishable supply chain uh, isn't operating correctly for some reason. And the reason why is because we're not treating perishables like perishables. We're treating them as if they were created in a factory, as if they have an unlimited shelf life. But the reality is that we are dealing with biological organisms that are living, breathing, dying. Um, and so this is kind of where my molecular bio kicked in, which was like, well, okay, if it's a, if it's a living organism, is there any kind of information that we can is there anything that we can learn about it that could help us do a little bit better moving, moving it uh, as it moves down the supply chain? So I started focusing specifically on produce um, and basically realized that if we knew the shelf life or at least the expiration date of uh, produce, then we could do a better job making decisions about what to move and when. And that would help eliminate food waste. It would help bring better quality produce to the store shelves. Um, and then the next step was, how, well, how do we do that? Well, what's cool is that, uh, again, these are living, breathing things. And so uh, we can literally hear them breathing or talking uh, through sensor technology. And then we can interpret these communications between fruits and veggies and turn all of that into decisions uh, to be made. So the way that I look at it is there's kind of no real guardian angel uh, for perishable products in the food supply chain. Everyone's kind of just playing one gigantic game of hot potato with perishable products, but no one's really looking after the whole thing. And so um, that's kind of that's kind of the thesis behind the company. And it's been that way uh, basically from day one. Yeah, it's like, it's a definite like uh, change the world thesis. And it's, it's, a, it's tackling a big problem. And I think you're very much onto something. Is anyone else, I guess you have competitors? Yeah, absolutely. So the traditional way of doing this was to apply chemicals to produce. So basically spray them with something that makes them uh, not die so quickly. Um, and we still do that. Um, and it, it can be very useful. Um, I also think that we could get smarter with data and um, not, not necessarily modify produce, um, but rather just keep it the way that it is, but just be a little bit smart about the decision that we're making. But regardless of uh, what, what people are using to kind of extend the shelf life of fruits and veggies, they're still going to go bad at some point. And so we still need to know when that is and what to do with it. And how does the company make money? What's the business model? So we, I call ourselves hardware-enabled SaaS. So we do have sensors. We have uh, technology that measures the uh, ripeness of produce. Um, but mainly what we sell is uh, data and more importantly, the decision. So for I can talk a little bit about what we do in apples, but basically we help apple suppliers figure out when to move their apples based on maturity. Um, so it's really the most important piece is the decision. And so that's how we, uh, that's how we price. So you're, so, um, so give me like a literal example. So you work with a farmer and the farmer pays you for the device or for the decision, I guess, like t tell me exactly how it works. Totally. So, um, so I'll tell you a little bit about our Apple business. So apples uh, can be over a year old before they get to the grocery store. And this is because they're stored. Um, and most, most apples are actually produced here in the PNW, which is why we, why I live here, why my company lives here. Um, so basically a packer is the person who stores fruit and a packer has dozens of storage rooms and each one is filled with millions of pieces of apples millions of apples. And the problem is that the, the packer doesn't really have too much quantifiable information about which 
behind which door is the ripest fruit, basically. And so they rely a lot on their historical knowledge. These are usually like fourth or fifth generation growers. And so they have a good relationship with all the folks in the community. They rely on, on a lot of their instinct. But at the end of the day, there's no quantifiable information about which apple is the most uh, ripe. And so what we do is we put our sensors inside those storage rooms and we tell the supplier which rooms to open first to send down the supply chain. We basically give them a two month heads up that the apples are going to not look so hot uh, in order to, to get them down the supply chain uh, in the right time. So what we do is we charge per room per year uh, in that case, per storage room per year. And who is responsible? I guess I've never really thought about this, but I grew up in the retail fashion business. And part of um, what I always thought was interesting is like, if you're, if you're negotiating, um, if like I'm buying Levi's for my store and the Levi's don't sell, some of the negotiation could be like, Hey, whatever we don't sell, we get to kind of send back and we're only going to buy a certain amount based. Or we're only going to purchase what we sold basically. So if, um, if all the apples go bad, like two weeks after QFC buys them, who's responsible for that? QFC. <laughs> so in general, they're kind of like little checkpoints, I guess, along the supply chain where the ownership of the product gets transferred. So as soon as a truck arrives at the distribution center of a retailer like QFC or Walmart or Target, and they say, okay, we're taking this truck, they now own it. So mm -hmm. any waste that happens is, is on them. But these are all like really big customers, right? There's only so many Walmart targets in the world and there's only so many Apple suppliers. And so in general, it's a reputation-based business. Um, so if you're not supplying great apples, then you're probably going to lose the contract uh, overall. Yeah. So you're working with apples and what else right now? Pears? Do apples, pears, and bananas. Um, and bananas. Bananas are definitely a little bit different, um, but same concept. Basically, the idea is that you as a consumer should be able to go to the grocery store and always see that perfectly yellow banana on the store shelf instead of the stuff that we're kind of seeing sometimes, which is the green ones, like green bananas or mushy avocados or hard avocados, and then not really being able to make a good purchase, but then also like having food waste happen in our houses because we don't even know when this stuff is going to go bad. Mm, totally. And so you're, I saw on your website, so you're working with the packers, which we've kind of talked about. You're working with the retailers. I think we didn't really cover like in what way you'd work with a retailer and then also importers. How do yeah. you work with importers and retailers? Yeah. So all of it, again, is basically organizing inventory based on maturity. But um, right now, the way that a retailer works is they just go first in, first out. So first truck of avocados into the warehouse is the first one that gets sent to the grocery store, not looking at maturity whatsoever. Well, imagine if that's the way emergency rooms worked uh, for us, right? Like no matter how bad my wound was, it doesn't matter. I'm just treated based on the time I came into the door. Well, you'd have a ton of waste, right? You'd have a ton of death. And so what we're doing is we're saying, we're going to actually assess the maturity of these avocados. We're going to take a look at what's going on. And then we're going to reshuffle your inventory so that you're always sending out the most ripe produce first. And that also happens to be the stuff that the consumer wants to eat, right? We want to go to the store and we want to see, you know, the ripest piece of fruit on the store shelf. So it kind of works out in both directions. And what about for importers? Same thing. Same thing. So importers, they're dealing with shipping containers. So for example, it can take like 80 days for Kiwis to get from Australia, New Zealand to the United States. 
Um, and then basically what happens is an importer receives like a, a bunch of black boxes filled with a perishable product that are pretty old at this point. And they have to make a split second decision about what am I sending to this retailer? What am I storing? What am I doing with my product? And right now it's all kind of a big guessing game. And so again, we put sensors inside little con the shipping containers and we are able to say, the shipping container is more mature than that one. So it's time to send that truckload to the grocery store as quickly as possible. I love this business so much. I mean, seriously, you're executing right now beautifully, but I mean, obviously it's just in its beginning stages of where it can go. I think it's going to be a, truly a game changer. And obviously others saw that too, because you got some pretty impressive investors. Um, are you comfortable saying how much you've raised and where you are with all, are you just, have you just raised in a seed round? I raised a series A. So I raised an $8 million series A about a year ago. I've raised about $11.5 million to date, and I'm probably going to go out for a B in a few months time. Yeah. And so who are some of your investors and um, how did you get in front of them? Um, and I guess just overall, what was that fundraising process like for you? I'm guessing you're pretty good at it because you defined yourself as being straightforward and you're very clear in the way you communicate your ideas. And I'm sure that's helpful. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I'm super good at fundraising. Uh, I, I definitely, I had, a, I took a couple of entrepreneurship classes uh, in school. A lot of it was definitely learning on my own mistakes um, and just trying to get as much information from people who had done it before as they could. Um, I've got some great investors on the table. What I've tried to do was basically get a bunch of different expertise. So we have union labs, which, uh, Knows a, they know a lot about IoT and kind of deep tech and hardware um, alongside Catapult. We have Yamaha. Uh, Yamaha's on my board. Um, Nolan Paul there has worked in ag for a very significant portion of his life. So he knows all about packers, all about importers, all about retailers, how they interact with each other, which is super helpful. Um, and then we have uh, other investors like Millennium Tech Ventures, Google Ventures um, that provide network support. Um, they also help with future fundraises as well. Yeah. And is Mark Cuban also an investor? Yes. Mark Cuban is an investor. Um, and, and we've had a couple calls. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with Mark Cuban. We watch in our house, we watch um, Shark Tank all the time and he's our favorite. Yeah. He's a, I remember like uh, one of the calls that I had, I wrote up like a list of like, I don't know, 50, a hundred questions. I was like, there's no way we're going to get through all of these in like half an hour to an hour. I don't remember how long it was. And we did because he has like an answer for every single thing. And I'm like, geez, like, yeah, he's intense. Yeah. He's just amazing. <laughs> I've heard him speak before too. And he's just cool. He just seems like the coolest person. Yeah. Um, yeah. I love that. So, well, that's exciting that you're going to go raise, um, more and how have you gone about has it been organic the establishment of your culture your values your strategy around recruiting um dei like all of that category of the business or did did you go in um with kind of a, a playbook or somebody telling you what to do definitely not uh i i went into this at like age 20 so there <laughs> there's like no playbook for anything <laughs> um i feel like um and I'm still very much thinking through these things, right? Like these are all living, uh, living, breathing, uh, changing things. Um, I think in culture, there's a couple of things that are really important to me. The first one is that every single day is going to be different at a startup. Some people don't love that, right? Some people want like uh, stability, inflexibility in their job. They want to know what they're 
kind of working on, that's not what a startup is, right? Every day you're doing something different and you're also learning on the job. And so that's a really big piece of what, uh, what we do. I think there's also um, knowing how to be comfortable in ambiguity, but simultaneously like not sacrificing quality for it, um, which is always kind of a, a really big uh, give and take. Um, so that's another thing that, that we're very focused on right now. Um, but in general, I think the, the culture is we're all in this boat together uh, we've decided to go on this adventure together. And so we're going to cry on each other's shoulders when we need to, but we're also going to celebrate together when, when we, when we have successes. Mm -hmm. And what are you guys celebrating right now? Like what's, what's on your mind as far as something that's exciting happening at Stabrella? Yeah. So we're about to uh, finalize a distribution deal that where we basically are um, now going to be selling globally, uh, which is super cool. So uh, we've traditionally been in only in the U.S. and mostly the PNW, but now we're about to have a bunch of international customers. So that's certainly something to celebrate. Right now we're all <laughs> we're all hands on deck, like like scrambling to get like something out the door. But uh, we will celebrate once we've kind of got yeah. the, the first push of product out. That's super exciting. How many employees do you currently have? We're at seventeen right now. Yeah. Well, that's, that's incredible what you've been able to do with a lean team like that. So 17. And what are some of the, I guess, goals for this year and in the next, um, you know, six to 12 months for the business? Yeah. So we're very much uh, growing our Apple business, like I said, in, in other geographies apart from North America. Um, and then we're also um, very much pushing on getting uh, our next couple customers for our banana product, um, which is brand new. So those are kind of our focuses alongside probably a fundraise. So uh, yeah. Yeah, that's incredible. I think you'll do great. And so um, I'm curious what, like, as we were getting on, we were talking about our list of things to do. Do you have any hacks for me or for our listeners of like ways to stay organized or to accomplish all of these things? Um, I guess even generationally, like given that you're out of college only a few years, you probably have like more technology efficiencies than some people are hacks of ways to get stuff done. Um, I think honestly, I, I don't have any super high tech ones, but um, one of them is uh, set external deadlines, which come naturally. Um, but I, I'm also one of those people who like procrastinates and stuff. But when I was in college and working on my startup, what really helped was to sign up for like a bunch of pitch competitions because mm. I didn't want to look like a fool <laughs> when I got on stage and like not have anything ready. So I did all my market research. I did all of my, you know, com competitive research, comp analysis, all that stuff. Um, and so I was pretty prepared. Um, so I think setting external, having external pressures and deadlines and also sometimes holding yourself to things. So um, again, like when I, before I graduated, I was like, okay, if I'm going down this kind of path that, that, you know, I don't really, I'm not sure if it's going to work out or not. I need to set myself some goals. And so what I did was I wrote in a word document, if I don't get X, Y, and or Z by the time I graduate, I'm going to go to grad school. And then I forgot that document. I didn't look at it until my graduation date, basically. And then, uh, and then I made a decision to continue or not. So yeah. I think setting kind of having water lines is really important. Um, yeah. and then OKRs as a, as a company, OKRs are really important. Yeah. You have implemented OKRs into the company. Yes. I think, um, Maybe I think I'm a little actually a little dumb and I can't uh, hold too many things in my head, but I can hold like my three, four goals 
And like, and I know that every day that I wake up, I'm like working towards those things. Uh, that's really, really useful for me. Well, I, maybe you could come over to my company and, and to my house and help me with my OKRs. It's, it's hard. You know, I know that this, this business has a, a clear purpose-driven aspect to it. And I'm, I'm guessing when you're recruiting people that if they, if this resonates in any way, which it should for everybody, that it's a passion thing for them too. like, this makes sense. Um, when you're going out to talk to potential customers, if they are saying like, yeah, no, thanks, but no thanks. Is it because they like, for what reason would they say no? Cause it just seems like such an obvious yes. Um, and I'm wondering if there's this blend of like, it, it feels like a feel good thing versus a like, no, there's an actual ROI on the business because the ROI on the business seems incredible. Like, and do you have any numbers that you can share around that part? Yeah, absolutely. So um, in agriculture, the biggest thing is that it is kind of an old industry. So um, the biggest thing that we get is I don't need technology. I've been doing this for generations now with my yeah. like methods that my dad, my grandpa, my great grandpa passed along to me. So that is really the kind of biggest thing. Um, to your point, we never lead with the sustainability piece. Uh, honestly, like I don't really have any sustainability investors. I don't, my customers do care about sustainability. Uh, farmers do care about the like 50 to hundred year outlook because they are passing things down from generation to generation. What are you doing uh, to impact the PL of a, of a business? Um, so for example, in our Apple business, we uh, charge $5,000 per room per year and we save about $40,000 on average room per year in waste. So there's a pretty significant ROI for a customer um, when, when they're coming in and that's really what we focus on. Yeah. So, okay. So my final question for you is what fuels you? Yeah. So I, I definitely think that uh, that can, you can go into a very long existential discussion about why we're here uh, and what's our purpose of being. Um, but I think that for me, it's to push the ball of human progress forward um, in whatever little tiny way that I can. Um, and so, yeah, I think uh, I'm, I'm very much fueled about making some sort of positive impact for humans uh, down the road. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You. Thank you.